Hi everyone and welcome. Do you know what time it is? That's right. It's time for your midweek Bible study. I'm Pastor Tim with Word of Hope Christian Church in New Braunfels, Texas. It's great to be with you once again. Thanks for joining me. Today is Wednesday, September 20th. Today we begin a new study in the book of Titus. Paul wrote this letter at about the same time as he wrote 1 Timothy. And the reason he wrote it was to bolster Titus' authority as Paul's apostolic representative in Crete and to give Titus clear instructions on each aspect of his work in the churches there. Today we begin with Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 16, and we'll talk about Paul's introduction and Paul's talking about Titus' work there in Crete. But as we always do, let's begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, Almighty God, Lord, we just love you so much. We're grateful for you. We're grateful that we have time to study your word today. Lord, open our hearts to receive your truth. In Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen and amen. All right, get your Bible or Bible apps open to Titus chapter 1, verses 1 to 16, and let's find out what the Apostle Paul has to say. This letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God does not lie, promised them before the world began. And now, at just the right time, he has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone. It is by the command of God, our Savior, that I am entrusted with this work for him. I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. I left you on the island of Crete so you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife, and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching to show those who oppose it where they're wrong. For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. They must be silenced because they're turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching, and they do it only for money. Even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, The people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. This is true, so reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned away from the truth. Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Such people claim to know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. Wow, that's fantastic. We are going to have a terrific study today. Let's dive in. Now let's look at verses 1 to 4, for they contain Paul's introduction and greeting. Let's see what he says. Verse 1, this letter is from Paul, a slave of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. I have been sent to proclaim faith to those God has chosen and to teach them to know the truth that shows them how to live godly lives. Our first question today. Paul begins this introduction and greeting by identifying himself in several ways. He also speaks of two aspects of his life and ministry. What stands out to you as the key points here? 
He begins this letter by calling himself a slave of God. That is one who is committed to obeying God. This is the only place, by the way, where Paul used this particular phrase to describe himself. Even though Paul was not one of the original 12 disciples later called apostles, he has been specially called by God as an apostle to bring the good news to the Gentiles, Acts 19, 1-16. I believe Paul's twofold reference to himself combines humble obedience with confident authority on his part. As a servant and apostle, Paul focused his life on two main concerns, faith and truth. God sent Paul to, as it said, to proclaim faith to those God had chosen and to teach them to know the truth. God's chosen are those who have responded to the gospel. Although we can't totally understand the doctrine of election, it gives us tremendous insight into God's love and wisdom. After responding to faith, God's people then need training in the truth so they can live godly lives. Paul's view of ministry was always long-term. He was not content to aim at people merely responding to the gospel. His goal was to bring people to spiritual maturity in Christ. Next, verse 2, it says, This truth gives them confidence that they have eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised them before the world began. The question is, God's truth taught by Paul to God's chosen results in what? As the verse says, it gives them confidence that they have eternal life. Believers' confidence regarding their eternal future is based on a good foundation, for God himself has promised it before the world began. The promise did not come at a point where sin entered the world, or even at the moment that God sent Christ to deal with the problem of sin. Christ's coming and the promise of eternal life had been planned by God from the very beginning. God has been and always will be in supreme control of all the universe, world events, and the future of his people. Confidence is also based on the fact that God does not lie. Apparently, lying was commonplace in Crete. Paul made it clear at the start that God does not lie. Trust in God's character forms the foundation of our faith. Because God is truth, he is the source of all truth and cannot lie. This puts him in complete contrast to Satan, who is the father of lies, John 8:44. The eternal life that God has promised will be ours because he keeps his promises. Next, verse 3, it reads, Now at just the right time he has revealed this message, which we announce to everyone, it is by the command of God our Savior that I have been entrusted with this work for him. Our question is, as Paul continues in this verse, what is his point? The revealing of the message, God's good news, the hope of eternal life came at just the right time, it says. That is, God sent his son at the proper time, the time of his own choosing, to bring the word of salvation to light. And Paul, at the opportune time in history, was called by God to announce this good news to everyone. Next up, verse 4. It reads, I am writing to Titus, my true son in the faith that we share. May God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior give you grace and peace. Our question is, this verse transitions from a focus on Paul to a specific individual. Who is it? And did Paul greet Timothy in a similar way in 1 Timothy 1, 2? The recipient of this letter is, I'm sure you already know, Titus. He's a Greek, one of Paul's most trusted and dependable co-workers. Paul says Titus is his true son. I believe this refers to Titus having been one of Paul's converts. Although he isn't mentioned in the book of Acts, other epistles and letters point out that Titus fulfilled several missions on Paul's behalf. And yes, Paul greeted Timothy in a similar way in 1 Timothy 1-2 when he said, I am writing to Timothy, my true son, in the faith. Paul repeated his standard greeting, which is grace and peace, with a slight change. 
Grace and peace emphasizes Paul's blessing to Titus, while these two terms stood in parallel to God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. Savior ends both verses in 3 and 4, and God our Savior in verse 3, and Christ Jesus our Savior in verse 4. This clearly reveals Paul's understanding of God's nature and work in salvation. In verses 5 to 16, Paul is going to focus on Titus' work in Crete. Unlike the pressing matter of the false teachers that was on Paul's mind when he wrote to Timothy in Ephesus, Paul's letter to Titus focused on establishing healthy churches in Crete. In both cases, identifying good leaders was a priority. But in Ephesus, leaders were needed to get the church back on track, while in Crete, effective leaders were needed to get the church moving in the right direction. Paul wanted Titus to choose the right people to lead the growing church in Crete. Let's find out more. Verse 5 says, I left you on the island of Crete so that you could complete our work there and appoint elders in each town as I instructed you. The question is, this verse explains the background to Paul's letter to Titus. What is he saying? Crete is a long 150-mile narrow island on the Mediterranean Sea southeast of Greece. Among its population were many Jews. The earliest converts there were probably Cretan Jews who had been in Jerusalem at the time of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, verse 11, more than 30 years before Paul wrote this letter. Perhaps there had been some renewed contact with Paul when he was there as a prisoner on his first journey to Rome for trial. Later, he and Titus returned for an evangelistic visit. Apparently, Paul did not stay long in Crete, so he left Titus to complete the work of establishing correct teaching and dealing with false teachers, as well as appointing elders in each town. Paul had appointed elders in various churches, as we know, during many of his journeys, Acts 14.23, for example. On Paul's return from the first missionary journey, he took extra time to revisit every church and establish each church's leadership. He could not stay in each church, but he knew that these churches needed strong spiritual leaders. The men chosen were to lead the churches by teaching sound doctrine, helping believers mature spiritually, and equipping believers to live for Jesus Christ, despite whatever the opposition was. Next is verse 6. It reads, An elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife, and his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. The question is, this verse includes three major qualifications of an elder. What are they? Let me start by noting this. Paul had given Timothy a very similar set of instructions for choosing leaders in the Ephesian church in 1 Timothy 3 verses 1 to 7 and 5 verse 22. I'd encourage you to read that when you can. Let's get on to those qualifications. The first qualification is an elder must live a blameless life. What does that mean? In other words, an elder must have no conduct that would be grounds for any kind of accusation. He must be above reproach. Again, the point here is not that the leaders could not be blamed, but rather that when blamed, their life would prove the falsehood of the blame. Next, the elder must be faithful to his wife. This means a church leader should not be promiscuous, but should be faithful in his marriage. This did not prohibit an unmarried person from becoming an elder. And thirdly, an elder's children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. This would show that the church leader has proven that he can lead his own household. An elder's children should have received spiritual training and should be believers. This will prove that they care about teaching correct doctrine and disciplining others. Obviously, those whose children are rebelling, running wild, and refusing to obey would not be fit for the important position of leading God's people. How one's children live attests to how the Christian life is practiced at home. Next up, verse 7. It says, 
A church leader is a manager of God's household, so he must live a blameless life. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered. He must not be a heavy drinker, violent, or dishonest with money. The question is, in this verse, Paul addresses several more qualifications for the position of elder. What are they? Once again, Paul reiterates, as he said in verse 6, an elder must live a blameless life. This emphasizes that this quality is essential in any person who is God's minister. Church leaders who act unworthily and bring blame and reproach on themselves also damage God's work. Next, Paul addresses a potential pitfall in leadership, and that is becoming arrogant. Pride can seduce emotions and cloud reason, making an elder ineffective. Pride and conceit were the devil's downfall, and he uses pride to trap others. In addition, a quick-tempered person will speak and act without thinking. Hurting people and damaging the church's work and reputation is a result of that being quick-tempered. The last three prohibitions had particular significance for Titus' search for church leaders in first century Crete. A church leader must not be a heavy drinker or violent, often the result of being quick-tempered or drunk. Furthermore, the leaders Titus chose should serve out of love, not because they're dishonest or greedy with money or are serving simply for the money. Next, verse 8, it says, Rather, he must enjoy having guests in his home, and he must love what is good. He must live wisely and be just. He must live a devout and disciplined life. After listing characteristics a church leader should not have, Paul lists several positive qualities they should have. What are they? First of all, hospitality. Hospitality was of primary importance in this culture. Believers were commanded to be hospitable, so their leaders must enjoy having guests in their home. This shows a devotion and concern for the welfare of others. Next, Paul says that leaders must love what is good. This person displays that goodness in the spiritual realm as he lives wisely and is just and fair to others. Paul also says a believer who is devout will most likely also have a disciplined life, picturing a person who, like an athlete, is constantly in training in his Christian life and service. Next, verse 9, it says, He must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. Then he will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they're wrong. The question here is, this verse has the final qualifications for local church elders. What are they? The church elder must meet moral and spiritual requirements in his personal life and be reliable in his understanding and teaching of the message he was taught. This last phrase actually occurs first in the Greek for emphasis. This message, as it had been taught to the apostles, was the trustworthy message that church leaders must teach their congregation. They must have a strong belief so that they can encourage others with wholesome teaching and point out the errors to those who oppose it. Pastors must fulfill a positive and a negative function in handling the truth. They must encourage by preaching, supporting, and reinforcing people as they follow the truth. But pastors must also confront and refute false ideas. Confident leaders with backbone, courage, and an irrefutable message would stand in strong contrast with Cretan lifestyles, character traits, and false teachers, which are going to be described more in the following verses. Next up, verse 10. It says, For there are many rebellious people who engage in useless talk and deceive others. This is especially true of those who insist on circumcision for salvation. Here's our question. At the end of the last verse, Paul changed focus to address false teachers which existed on Crete and elsewhere. He continues that thought here in this verse. What is he saying? 
The false teachers Paul and Titus faced were those who insist on circumcision for salvation. They were called Judaizers. These were Jews who taught that the Gentiles had to obey all Jewish laws, rules, and rituals before they could become Christians. This regulation confused many new Christians, and it caused problems in many churches where Paul had preached the good news. Paul wrote letters to several churches to help them understand that Gentile believers did not have to become Jews first in order to be Christians. In other words, God accepts anyone who comes to him in faith. I would encourage you to see Romans 1.17 and Galatians 3 verses 2 through 7. Although the Jerusalem Council had dealt with this issue, devout Jews who refused to believe in Jesus still were trying to cause problems in the Christian churches. The ruling of the Jerusalem Council may have been honored by those within the churches, but those outsiders did not recognize the apostles as having any authority. Well, here Paul identifies three characteristics of this brand of false teachers. What are they? First, Paul says, there are many rebellious people. Do you see that there in the verse? In other words, these false teachers rebel against right teaching, flouting the authority of Paul and Titus. Next, they engage in useless talk. In other words, they speak lots of words but say nothing. And lastly, they deceive others because they do not have the truth. Next up, verse 11, it says, They must be silenced because they're turning whole families away from the truth by their false teaching, and they do it only for money. Here's our question. What does Paul say needs to happen to these false teachers and why? Paul says these false teachers must be silenced. Very clear there. The Greek word literally means to muzzle. Their false teaching was ruining people's faith. Whole families had been affected, causing confusion in the church. These teachers didn't teach the trustworthy message of the gospel, but their own ideas. Their goal was not to glorify the Lord and build his church, but to make money. Naturally, it was hoped that these people would respond to the truth and be united with the true body of believers. Next is verse 12. It says, Even one of their own men, a prophet from Crete, has said about them, The people of Crete are all liars, cruel animals, and lazy gluttons. Here's our question. In this verse, Paul quoted a line from a poem written by a Cretan poet and philosopher who had lived in Crete 600 years earlier. What was the message Paul was trying to convey? First of all, Paul called this man Epimenides, a prophet because other ancient writers, notably Aristotle and Cicero, did so as well, and because his own countrymen gave him that title. Now, Paul is not saying he was a prophet in a biblical sense. The quotation reveals basic character flaws in the Cretan. They were liars and cruel animals, referring to unrestrained brutality and lives out of control, and they were also called lazy gluttons. The reputation of the Cretans was so bad that the verb form of their name, kretizo, was used by the Greeks to indicate lying. Paul applied this familiar phrase to the false teachers. Next, verse 13, it says, This is true, so reprimand them sternly to make them strong in the faith. Question, how does Paul say Titus is to respond to these false teachers? Paul's recommended remedy was to reprimand them sternly and, if possible, to restore them to strength in the faith. A forceful, direct response early would prevent utter chaos in the church later. If the first believers were to develop unhealthy spiritual lives, they would carry their disease as it is into the ongoing life of the church. Better to deal with the problem right away than let it build up. But even here, the goal demanded that even the least hopeful candidates for the church could be given the opportunity to come to faith. Next, verse 14, it says, They must stop listening to Jewish myths and the commands of people who have turned away from the truth. Our question is, 
The false teachers were to be rebuked regarding two specific areas here in this verse. What are they? The first area was Jewish myths. They were probably some useless speculations on the Old Testament. Titus may well have been facing religious syncretism. Religious syncretism is the fusion of multiple religious ideologies, rituals, and customs into a single unified belief system. So these false teachers were trying to dilute Judaism with various forms of paganism, which in the end would yield a deadly brand of godless religion. Secondly, the commands of the people. Do you see where it says that? In other words, these are human commands, most likely focused on rules and rituals, especially Jewish laws regarding what was clean and unclean, as is evident from Paul's words in verses 15 and 16 coming up. Titus faced the lethal combination of religion and falsehood. Such mixtures have always presented a challenge to God's people. Today, the spirit of our times applauds those who create their own personal religion. Self-made rules and guidelines that come from human teachings and not God should never and I mean never, be the basis for Christian thought. Next, verse 15, it says, Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, but nothing is pure to those who are corrupt and unbelieving because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Here's the question. In this verse, Paul compares and contrasts purity. What is he saying? Phrases like this one, Everything is pure to those whose hearts are pure, must be understood in both immediate and a wide context. Paul was not preaching or teaching moral relativism. In other words, as long as I can call myself pure, whatever I choose to do is therefore pure. He is speaking against superficial external legalism. Dietary restrictions or food laws presented a form of religion that people thought provided spiritual substance, but which proved to be empty of real spiritual help. Those who believe sound doctrine and live their faith do not need to worry about rules and rituals regarding what is clean and unclean. No stronger denunciation could be made of these false teachers who taught the need for following rules and rituals in order to be clean and pure. Because of their inner corruption, nothing is pure. Nothing they say, do, give, or teach could ever be pure because their minds and consciences are corrupted. Echoing Jesus' teaching in Mark 7:15-19 and Luke 11:39-41, Paul explained that a person who is pure on the inside cannot be corrupted by outside influences. But a person who is corrupt on the inside corrupts everything around him. There can be no purity for that kind of a person. And lastly, our final verse of the day, verse 16. It says, Such people claim they know God, but they deny him by the way they live. They are detestable and disobedient, worthless for doing anything good. Our final question today is this. These are Paul's final words about the false teachers in Crete. How would you sum up these words? Please explain. The corrupt and unbelieving false teachers claimed to know God, but their actions said something different. It revealed their true nature. No matter what rules they claimed to follow, they denied God by the way they live. The false teachers professed knowledge of God and with their Jewish background may have been well-versed in the Old Testament, but they based their faith on works, not on the Lord Jesus Christ, so they denied the God they claimed to know. Paul employed strong words because of the sin of these false teachers and that they deserved strong condemnation. Paul called them detestable, revealing his disgust at their sin and hypocrisy. He also said they were disobedient because they acted against the God they claimed to know. He also said they are worthless for doing anything good because people who live in rebellion against God cannot do any works that will really, really please him. Strong words, folks, I know. But you know, can you see the application for us today? 
absolutely do we need to be living this out today. And not just for the Timothys and Tituses out there, but for all of us who claim Jesus as Savior. I mean, this has just been incredible. And we're just off to the first study in Titus. We've got a little bit more to go in the coming weeks, and I hope you'll stay with us for it. This is just an incredible way to start off. You know, Paul wasn't holding back anything talking today about those false teachers in Crete, was he? The importance of this study is this. Churches need leaders who are totally committed to Jesus Christ and who are living the way God wants them to live. It is not enough to be educated, have special abilities and gifts, or to have a loyal following to be Christ's kind of leader. Church leaders must have self-control, spiritual and moral fitness, and Christian character. God wants Christians to aspire to leadership in his church, but they must be the right kind of leaders. Who you are is more important than what you can do. Amen to that. All right, next time we'll study Titus chapter 2, verses 1 to 15, and we'll talk about how Paul writes to promote right teaching. Thanks again for joining me today. What a joy to be with you. We're off to a great start. Have an amazing rest of your day and week, and I'll see you right back here next time. Until then, God bless you. Go in peace. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time for another encouraging message from God's Word. To find out more about our ministry, look us up on the web at www.whccnb.org. Word of Hope Christian Church. Real people. A real God. Real hope.